Let's pray. Lord, we want to tremble before your word here, and how, how could we not tremble before it? All of it, but even especially a passage like this, Lord, that is just so massive. What it is saying here, Lord, is so precious and so good. And God, you know I'm so aware of the, the limits of, of human words right now. And so I'm asking, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to be active here to do what we can't do, to help us taste and see that the Lord is good, to grasp the, the glory here in your word, to bust past our defenses and our distractions and, and to open our eyes to see the glorious things and truths here in your law, in your word. God, don't let us miss out on what you've said and what you're saying to us in your word today. Don't let us miss out on the majesty of being a part of your people together. Would you help, Lord? Would you help us? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please feel free to have a seat. I was recently at an event. I was listening to a speaker who opened his message by asking us which event from the Bible we'd like to be a part of if we could. So if we had a time machine, we'd go back, pick a spot in the Bible that we would experience firsthand, what would it be? And he listed off a few options of things that he would be interested in. Instantly, I knew my answer. If I had a time machine, I would go back. I've known this for years. I'd go back to the moment on the road to Emmaus, recorded in Luke chapter 24. When Jesus opens up the Bible to those two disciples, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explains to those two disciples all the things in the scriptures concerning himself. I want to be there for that. And if I could, I'd want to hang around just a little bit longer for that moment when Jesus then it appeared to the 11 disciples. It's in the same chapter. And he said many of the same things. And it says in verse 45, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I, I want to be there with the camera. I want to capture the look on the apostles' face when they get it for the first time. When, when Peter and John and, and Matthew look at Jesus and they know who he is for the first time. They understand their own scriptures for the first time. They know finally what their whole national history has been about, what their lives are about, what the history of the world is, is about. And it's all centered on this man standing flesh and blood with scars in his hands right in front of them. I, I want to be there for that. But if I had to narrow it down, I would pick Emmaus. I want to hear Jesus preach the whole Bible and explain how he's at the center of it all. And, and for years, this actually drove me nuts. Because I asked, why isn't that sermon written down? If I was Luke, and I'm compiling all this information into an account of the life of Jesus, those two guys, I'd, I'd make a beeline for it. Say, tell me what you remember. And I'd, I'd, I'd do my, like, I, I want to know that sermon that Jesus preached. I want to hear this Savior himself unpack the Bible and show how he's at the center of it. Why didn't, why didn't they leave some kind of record 
of how to understand the Bible with Jesus at the center. And then one day I realized what some of you, it's, it's probably obvious to you already. Luke and the apostles did keep a record of how to understand the Bible with Jesus at the center. It's called the book of Acts in the New Testament. Here in these pages, I mean, as we hear the apostles preach in the book of Acts, and as we read the writings of the apostles and, and those that worked with them in the rest of the New Testament, the apostles do for us what Jesus did for them on the road to Emmaus and in that upper room in Jerusalem. Back in 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12, Peter told us that the Hebrew prophets prophesied about the grace that would be given to us. In other words, they were talking about Jesus. And we said back then that Peter, as we kept going through his letter, was going to show us how to read the prophets as pointing to Jesus. Now, Peter's done that. He started to do that already. He showed us how the prophecy of Isaiah 40 is about the gospel of Jesus, right? This word that Isaiah talked about is the good news that was preached to you. He's touched on Psalm 34 and how Psalm 34 anticipates our enjoyment of Jesus. Today, in today's passage, we get three more cases, at least three. There's some echoes of more potentially, but at least three cases where Peter mines the depths of Isaiah and the Psalms to help his readers understand our relationship with the Lord, with each other, and with, with the world around us. And as we get into today's passage, we can't miss how, how once again this is all connected with what's come before. Remember, P- Peter wrote a letter, and we have to break it up into sections because otherwise we'd be here for 20 hours. I figured it out. If we were to combine all these sermons, 20 hours, that would not be fair to you. And, and yet, we have to remember, and, and we've been trying to do that all along, how, how these are all, all connected. Today's passage is going to give us compelling reasons to love one another. Today's passage is going to give us compelling reasons to keep on tasting that the Lord is good. Today's passage is going to give us compelling reasons to keep on persevering in the midst of a hostile culture. So see, it's all, it's all connected. And Peter mines the depths of, of Old Testament truth to help us see that. And, and he does that in the second half of the passage, and that's actually where we're going to start. We're going to start with these three Old Testament quotations in verse 6, 7, and 8. And then we're going to move back to the beginning to see how this all connects together. So let's start with Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen, which Peter quotes in verse 6. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Isaiah 28. This is a passage about judgment, which isn't too surprising. Lots of the prophets are about judgment, but this is about judgment on the leaders of Jerusalem. They were feeling the threat of the king of Assyria, most likely. Instead of repenting of their sins and turning back to the Lord, Jerusalem's leaders from what we can piece together, chose to make an alliance with Egypt. That's something Israel did a lot, right? They went back They went back to Egypt, their former oppressor, to try and find safety. And in verse 15, with perhaps a note of sarcasm, 
the Lord through Isaiah says that by making an alliance like this, they've actually made an alliance with the grave. They've actually made an alliance with death. They've taken shelter in lies and falsehood. This, this, in other words, this isn't going to work out well for you. By going to Egypt, it's basically like you've locked yourself in a coffin. Verse 13 says that they're going to fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Verse 18 says that their covenant with Egypt isn't going to save them and that, quote, when the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. But but against this backdrop of judgment comes a note of hope in verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. So piece this together and we can see the Jerusalem leaders are on their way out by trusting in men instead of God. They're going to be judged and they're going to be removed. But that doesn't mean the end of God's work. God is going to begin a new construction project, right? The cornerstone is the first stone you'd lay in a new building. Most, most of the buildings in this part of the world were built of stone, built of rock. The first stone you'd lay would be a cornerstone. So when God says, I'm laying a cornerstone, that means new construction. Every other brick in the building would get squared off of that cornerstone. God's saying to these leaders, you're on your way out. I'm starting something new and not with you. And he says this, this isn't going to be an ordinary human structure. This isn't like a, a third temple building. Verse 17, and I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. So if you think you, you put your cornerstone down and then you, you stretch out the, the lines to square all the other stones. And God says in this new construction, justice and righteousness are, the, are what things are going to line up to. This is a whole new reality in which righteousness and justice will be the standard. And it will all be built on the cornerstone described in verse 16 as a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. And and this foundation is connected to the truth, verse 15, that, sorry, verse 18, sorry, verse 16, that whoever believes will not be in haste. And and the sense we get here is that those who trust God are not going to go scurrying off to Egypt to find human salvation, running around like chickens with their head cut off, trying to make themselves safe. This cornerstone represents the truth that God is a sure refuge for all who believe in him. Now, it's interesting, when when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, the translators took this phrase, not be in haste, and in Greek they translated it as not be put to shame. That's reflected in the way Peter quotes it here in verse 6 of 1 Peter 2. And, and, And evidently they saw a connection between being in haste, running off to find help, and shame. Perhaps there's this idea that it, it was a shameful thing to go beg for help from Egypt when your God was standing there ready to help. 
And so Isaiah 28 is a promise to replace the faithless dealings of Jerusalem with a new construction project based on faith in the Lord. And it might not be surprising that in the centuries after this was written, even long before Peter's time, some Jewish people came to understand this cornerstone as a reference, not to an idea, but to a specific person, the Messiah. This, this, this was happening already in the centuries before Peter, first Peter was written that this cornerstone is a, is a, is a Messiah, the Messiah, a person who will be this set the standard for truth and righteousness as God's people are rebuilt on him. So that's the first Old Testament passage that Peter has in mind that Peter is drawing on. There's a second one and that's Psalm 118, 22. And he quotes that in verse 7. So you can turn to Psalm 118. You might remember that the Psalms are divided up into five books. And these books roughly tell the story of, of Israel. The fifth book looks beyond the, the, the exile and the, the destruction of Jerusalem. And it looks to the day when God's going to restore and redeem his people. Now, Psalm 18 is also important because it closes off a section of Psalms from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 that were used every year as part of the Passover liturgy. These were the hymns sung by God's people as they remembered that they had been delivered from Egypt and, and many of them singing them as they longed for deliverance from powers like Persia, Greece, Rome. Now, just like Isaiah 28, Psalm 113 touches on the threat of enemy nations attacking the people of God, and perhaps especially attacking the king in Jerusalem. Verse 5 talks about distress. Verse 10, all the nations surrounded me. Verse 13, I was pushed hard so that I was falling. But unlike the corrupt leaders in Isaiah, the singer of Psalm 118, who's a leader of the people, quite possibly the king, he's not running off to Egypt. He's trusting in God to save him. Verse six, nine, verses 6 to 9. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And the rest of the psalm celebrates the way that God answered this faith by, by saving them. And, and, and what's happening in the rest of the psalm is the, the, the chief singer, who might be the king, is inviting the people of God to join and worship. Verse 15, glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. Verse 19, open to me the gates of righteousness that I might enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. So the picture here is of, is of the singer in Psalm 18 leading a procession up into the courts of the temple to praise God for answering him and for saving him. Verse 21, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. And then in verse 22, we read the most interesting sentence, which might seem like it comes completely out of the blue. 
The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What's going on there? It's not coming out of the blue. This is a word picture drawing on a common picture, right, of the construction practices of the day. The rocks used to make a building would have been cut in a quarry and the builders would cut, as they cut out stones, would try to pick the the one to be the cornerstone. And this verse pictures the builders who, who likely is pointing to the powerful rulers of the world. That they see a particular stone and they pass over it. They think it's worthless. So to the first readers and singers of Psalm 118, was that stone, did that represent the people of Israel? Did it represent this, this king? Is he describing his experience of suffering that the, that the first half of the psalm is talked about? Regardless, it's a picture of how God takes what the world rejects and makes it ground zero for his redemption project. He takes what the world rejects and passes over and builds salvation on it. And it's got the, it's got the ring of a proverb and it captures the dramatic reversal of redemption. This is how God works. He takes what's weak and rejected and foolish in the eyes of the world and he builds salvation on it. There's so much more we could say. That's just a brief overview of what's going on in Psalm 118, verse 22. There's a final scripture that Peter points to. Now we're back to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 8. Now we preached through the first few chapters of Isaiah a couple of summers ago, but perhaps a refresher might be in order. This first section of Isaiah comes during a time when the kingdom of Judah was under threat from its northern neighbor, Israel, and Syria. Israel's freaking out, and through Isaiah, God calls them to trust in him instead of man. Does that that sound familiar? There's a a pattern here, isn't there? There's a pattern here. And in verse 12 of chapter 8, God speaks directly to Isaiah and says, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him shall you honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. In other words, don't don't fear what the other people are fearing. Fear me. That's what God is saying. Fear God. And then verse 14 begins by saying, and he will become a sanctuary. In other words, if you trust in God instead of running off to those other nations, God's going to be a safe place for you. But that's not where verse 14 ends. It keeps going. He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Do you catch that? What's this verse saying about God? Is God a safe place? 
or a force of destruction? The answer is yes. God is either going to be a rock of refuge that keeps you safe or a stone that trips you up so that you've fallen or broken. The, the idea here is that God is unavoidable. These people in Jerusalem might want to ignore him and, and maybe put him on a shelf for a time and go find help somewhere else, shop around for different saviors. It's not going to work. They're not going to get their way. They can't avoid God. They can't get around him. They will either trust in God and, and find safety and shelter or they're going to trip over God and be smashed. God will either be their rescuer or their wrecker, their savior or their stumbler. They will either believe in him and find his mercy or reject him and find his wrath. These are the three Old Testament passages in the background. And Peter understands that they are fulfilled in Christ. These all point to Jesus. Verse 4, if we go back, 1 Peter 2, verse 4, refers to Jesus as the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. That one sentence combines both Psalm 118 and and. Isaiah 28, to show that Jesus is the cornerstone spoken of by both of these prophets. Like Isaiah foresaw, God is rebuilding his people upon the cornerstone of Jesus. This isn't the first time Peter made this point. In Acts chapter 4, Peter was on trial for preaching the gospel What did he say to the rulers of Jerusalem? This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Just a few weeks earlier, many of those leaders probably heard these same similar words from Jesus himself. When Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus, it's very clear, is talking about himself. Don't miss how Jesus there connected Psalm 118 with Isaiah chapter 8. So, so, so Jesus set this up for Peter. We also can't miss that in Isaiah chapter 8, who is the stone talking about? He's talking about God. Jesus, in a subtle way, and Peter, in a not-so-subtle way, applies it to Jesus Jesus is not just a human Messiah. He's the Son of God. And the the upshot of all this is that we should not be surprised that the Messiah was rejected and crucified by the rulers of Rome and Jerusalem. We should not be surprised when his followers are treated the same. Because these prophecies are telling us that this has always been the plan. The cornerstone was always going to be rejected by the world's rulers. It's the way it was always going to happen. What matters is not what the rulers of the world do. Of course they're going to reject the cornerstone. 
But what matters is God's perspective. The, the rejected stone is chosen and precious in the sight of God. And upon him, God is rebuilding a people who will outlast all human empires. And so those who trust in him for salvation will not in the end be put to shame. Like verse 6 says. They might look foolish. They might experience shame here and now. They might be canceled by their cultures. But in the last day, that shame is going to turn to honor. Like verse 7 says. The honor is for you who believe. Meanwhile, those who reject the cornerstone are going to find themselves on the outside of God's plan. No matter how high and powerful they look today, their unbelief and their disobedience means they're going to stumble over Jesus and they're going to be destroyed. Verse 8 tells us they were destined for this. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. That's a powerful reminder that God is sovereign over all things, including salvation. And what we've summed up here are some of the big ideas that we see when we follow along with Peter as he puts these three Old Testament passages together and shows us how they are fulfilled in Christ. Isaiah, the psalmist, they were, they were, they, whether they knew it or not, were writing ultimately about Jesus who would fill the, fulfill these passages as the great cornerstone upon which God is building his new work of salvation. Those are not the only big ideas, though. If we go back to verse 4, we're going to see how Peter takes this truth about Jesus, the cornerstone, and he applies it to the realm of our relationships that we have with one another. And the way we're going to see this truth in verse 4 and 5 is by asking a series of questions. We're going to ask a series of four questions of verse 4 and 5 to try to get at this tr- the, the truth that Peter is unpacking here for our relationships with each other. The first question, what gets put on the cornerstone? Think of it this way. When you walk up and you see a physical stone on a new construction site in ancient Jerusalem, what what, what do you think is going to get added to that? More stones. More stones will be added to the sides and the top. But if this cornerstone that Isaiah and the Psalms speak about is a person, Jesus, then what gets put on the cornerstone? If the cornerstone's a person, then what gets put on the cornerstone? More people. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. If Jesus is the living cornerstone, that makes us living stones. That means that this new work of God isn't tied to one place like a building. 
foreseen by the prophets, God is building a new structure made of people who are bound together by our faith in the cornerstone. Second question, what kind of building are we becoming? Just think about that for a moment. What does Peter say in verse 4? Sorry, verse 5. He says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. When you think of stones, house, Jerusalem, what comes to mind? And the answer almost certainly points to a temple. Many times in the Old and New Testaments, the temple is called a house. And in the context of this passage, with all of its talk that we're going to see in a moment of priests and sacrifices, it strongly points us in this direction. The picture of a temple. We know this is true from other scriptures. One of them is on the front of your bulletin. Peter, sorry, Paul develops this idea that we as living stones built on the cornerstone of Christ are becoming a temple. Jesus himself said that he was the new temple. And Peter and Paul are taking it a step further and saying if Jesus is a cornerstone and we're stones being built on him, then we ourselves are being built into a new temple. The place where God dwells by his spirit. We're a spiritual house and God dwells among his people, not a place. Many Christians miss that something majorly significant happened in the transition between the old covenant and the new covenant. God is not confined to a place but God dwells among his people. Sometimes we miss this. It comes out in some of our, our worship songs where we like some of, our, some of the worship songs ask God to fill up this place like the temple. That misses the point. We live in a whole new era. The temple was a shadow. The reality is here. And the reality of which the temple was only a point or two is God dwelling among his people through Christ by the spirit. Let's ask a next question. If this new work of God that he's building on Jesus, the cornerstone, is a temple, what goes on in that temple? Well, what what went on in the first temple? Priests offered sacrifices. What goes on in this new temple that God's building by his spirit? Same answer. Priests offering sacrifices. But not in the same way that happened before. In a brand new way, verse 5, you're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So did you catch that? We are not only the stones that make up the temple. We're also the priests serving in the temple, offering sacrifices. We're the building and we're the priests serving in the building. This is so wonderful. In the Old Covenant, there was only a small number of people that could be priests. And even for those, it was very rare to actually be able to go inside the temple itself. But here we read that all of God's people have been made, are being built into a holy priesthood, a priesthood devoted to God. There's no separate class among God's people. Whatever pastors and elders are, they're not priests. We together are the priesthood. 
Now, it's important to note this word priesthood. Most English translations get this right. There's a couple that just say priests, and that's not, that's not quite the sense. The idea is not so much here that every one of us individually is a priest. So we can go off by ourselves and be Lone Ranger priests. That's not the idea. The idea is that we have been made a part of a priesthood. In other words, we're in this together. We need each other. This is a, this is a shared experience. You were designed to serve as a priest in connection with others. And priests, as priests, we offer spiritual sacrifices. This is very similar language to Romans 12. It talks about offering our bodies as living sacrifices. This actually is an idea in the Old Testament. Psalm 51, 17 talks about the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. This is very, so this is a very old idea that, that the, the real and the best sacrifice that we bring to God is not a hunk of meat, but our very selves. Our very selves. And that fits very well in the context of 1 Peter, right? Where Peter has been talking about giving our whole lives to God in holiness. And so just, just even without looking at other scriptures, just the direction Peter's pointed us, we're very much on the right track to say that the sacrifice that we offer to God is our whole selves. Everything we do through Christ, our whole life offered to God through the Spirit. And it's so wonderful what he says here in verse 5, that our spiritual sacrifices are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter knows that his readers are not perfectly holy. I mean, if if they were perfectly holy, he wouldn't have to tell them to be holy. He knows they're not perfectly obedient. Otherwise, he wouldn't have to tell them to be obedient. But Jesus' perfect sacrifice makes our imperfect obedience acceptable to God. Jesus' perfect sacrifice makes our imperfect holiness, our imperfect devotion acceptable to God. So just like in the Old Covenant, the blood of the bull made the priests purified to serve in the tabernacle, so in Christ, his death and resurrection and ongoing ministry makes our offering of our whole lives to God acceptable. And God doesn't look at your life and say, what is that? But through Christ, when we offer it through Christ, Jesus makes the offering of our life acceptable to him. So, what's God building on the cornerstone of Jesus? He's building a new temple. We're the blocks. We're also the priests serving inside, offering up the sacrifice of our whole selves. And God dwells among us. Fourth question we want to ask. How does construction happen? Well, we, We're not asking a question that we could, is who does the construction? Well, we, we know it says, we are being built up. So we're not the builder. God's the builder. He's doing this work of bringing his people together and filling them with his spirit. But Peter tells us how this happens. The process of being built up does involve us. And to see that answer, we go all the way back to the beginning of verse four. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, as you come to him, 
you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. This building project happens as we come to him. The Lord of verse 3, which is Christ, as we come to Jesus, we're built up. Or even just in the sense of, 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 of the way Peter has this, coming to Jesus, we are built up. Which means that coming to Jesus really matters. If we don't come to him, we don't get built up. So we need to know what it means to come to him. In some ways, the whole passage hinges on this. What does it mean to come to him? What is Peter talking about? Well, it might be easy for us to to run this phrase through our modern filters and think of coming to Jesus in the sense of coming to him for salvation. Like when we first come to Jesus, like we would say to someone who's not a Christian, we would say, come to Jesus. That's good. That's good. Being converted. (laughs) If you don't know Jesus, I'd say that to you right now. Come to Jesus. But that's most likely not what Peter's talking about because the whole the whole time since he started to give us instruction in verse 13, he's been talking about people who are saved, preparing our minds for action, being sober-minded, setting our hope fully on the grace of his return, not being conformed to our former way of life, being holy in all of our conduct, conducting ourselves with fear, loving one another earnestly, putting away the love-killing sins that we heard about last week, Longing for spiritual nourishment like babies, which implies that we want to grow. And so when he writes, coming to Jesus, you are being built up. It's very unlikely that he suddenly switched gears and is talking about when we first got converted. It's far more likely that Peter sees coming to Jesus as a part of our Christian experience. Something that's happening with all of these other things that he's been talking about. And in fact, that's how the word come to him is used throughout the rest of the Bible. This comes from a word in the Greek language that's used, uh, often translated draw near. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel would draw near to God to hear him speak. The priests in the sanctuary would draw near when they came to offer sacrifices. This word, same word, but translated draw near is used in the book of Hebrews. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Let us come to him that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4.16. Hebrews 10.22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So in other words, coming to him Drawing near is not something that we did once. It's something we do as an ongoing part of our Christian experience. It is our great privilege to be able to draw near to God through Christ. We don't have to go to a building in Jerusalem. Hebrews 7.25, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is talking about what we do. In the context of First Peter 2, it's also, a, a, there's a connection to be made between drawing near 
And verse, what verse three said about longing for the pure spiritual milk, sorry, verse two. I'll just put it this way. I'll try and be delicate here, but Peter wrote before formula and bottles. So if a baby was hungry for milk, they had to get close to a person. And we, having already tasted that the Lord is good, verse 3, need to draw near to him to receive the spiritual nourishment that we need. So we really need to draw near to the Lord. At this point, as I, as I wrestled with how to preach this passage this week, it, 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 it would have been relatively easy at this point to, to try to, because just so you know, there's such a burden for me to help us together understand what does it mean to draw near. And it would be easy to, to pare it down, to boil it down to, you know, just one or two simple activities, like drawing near means praying. Or drawing near means reading our Bibles. Coming to God means coming to worship with his people on Sunday morning, like you're doing right now. Now, now please hear, those are all very good ways of coming to God, of drawing near to him. I mean, that's one of the things I love about our prayer services, just the privilege of coming to God together. I love it. But if we just look at the full breadth of Scripture, and if we look at just the context of, of, of Peter, we can't boil it down to just one or two simple activities that we can check off a box and say, yeah, I drew near to God today. I came to God next. This is talking about your born-again soul drawing near to its Savior through the Spirit. And you can't, you can't put that on a checkbox. This is about you fellowshipping with God communing with God, turning your heart toward him, seeking his face in an ongoing personal relationship. And those of you who know the Lord, you know what this you know what this feels like even if you haven't put these words to it. You know what it's like to have your soul pointed away from the Lord and then what it's like to turn to him and to come to him. And that's going to express itself in many different activities. Many different spiritual disciplines. Sometimes we have to drag ourselves to him. But coming to Jesus, drawing near to him, is this unseen movement of the soul towards God that is underneath each of those activities. And it is as we come to him for nourishment, for fellowship, for relationship, for forgiveness, for holiness, for help, for strength, for love, as we come to him, that's how we are being built up together into this spiritual house to be a spiritual priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. So that's where we're going to end our time here together today with, with a call that, that Peter just assumes. He just says, as you come to him, you're built up. What's the implied call here? Come to him. Come to him together. Come to him. And let's keep this whole, pack, this whole passage in focus. Let's know that we are coming 
to a cornerstone that was rejected by the world and will continue to be rejected by the world today. Coming to Jesus, let's give up on any attempt to try to make Jesus cool or acceptable to the power holders of our culture. Let's embrace the shame of being built on a rejected cornerstone. Just embrace it. And embrace the the fact that in God's eyes, this cornerstone is not foolish. It is chosen and precious. And on the last day, our shame will be reversed and replaced with honor in God's sight. Pursue, pursue that. Come, come to Jesus. As you come to him, know that we are in this together. You are not a solitary block, but you are a part of God's building project. God has designed us for substantial relationship with each other. As, well, you say, how close? As close as bricks in a wall. Next time you get a, get a look at stonework, think. Uh, some of you, I don't know if there's a, 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 an easily identifiable brick building in town or one that you're familiar with, but as, as you look at that, we've got stacker stone on the front of our house. So kids, you remember this. As, as you walk by and you see that, remember, that is as close as my relationship with my brothers and sisters in Christ is supposed to be like. I mean, what good is a brick by itself? It's just there to hold doors open or whatever. But together, we become a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Does this reflect the way that you approach your church, your other relationships with God's people? Do you know that you're not a rolling stone off by yourself, but, but an integral part of the structure? See, going back to the last couple of weeks here, this is a pretty strong reason to love each other, right? We're in this together like bricks in a wall. And as we come to him, let's remember this spiritual building is still very much under construction, We are being built. I find that so encouraging because it's so easy to get discouraged with ourselves and with plural ourselves, isn't it? If we just look at the stuff that's wrong, if we think we're supposed to be finished by now, what's the problem? But if we remember that we're still under construction, there's there's this, this smell of spiritual wet paint. There are spiritual under construction signs everywhere. At least there should be. And we, as we come to him, are being built up. So let's come to him. For some of you, yes, this might mean coming to him for the first time. Would you come? For many of us, this means coming to Jesus again and again and again. It means more than throwing God a bone by doing your devotions in the morning and checking it off on the list and drowning your mind in cultural garbage for the rest of the day. That's not what it looks like to come to him. God wants all of you. He wants you to come to him again and again and again. This passage is calling us to make fellowshipping with God our Savior a supreme priority in our lives at all times and all ways. And I end this sermon now so unsatisfied, not just because I wasn't feeling good and had to sit down, but so unsatisfied because I want to say so much more about coming to him. I find this such an alluring concept. I, I want 
to come to him. I want to come to him with you and I want to understand this better. And yet the reality is that this is our life together. And and we've talked about this a lot, even without knowing it. And we're going to keep talking about it a lot. The study guide this week goes to Psalm 63 and unpacks so helpfully some more dimensions of, of coming to him. And, and so I just need to end and pray that by his spirit, the Lord will make us thirsty to come to him. And as we do that, to look around at what he's building, because it's good and it's going to be even better. Let's pray. Lord, we need you like a hungry baby needs a parent, someone to feed it. We're helpless apart from you. Lord, we want to come to you now, together, right now, in prayer. I want to ask you to make us thirsty and hungry for you that we might turn aside from the the stuff that we so easily fill our stomachs with. And we want to come to you again and again and again. And thank you for this beautiful truth that as we come to you, you are building us up on this precious cornerstone as a new temple where you live and you are building us up as a spiritual priesthood offering our very selves to you Lord don't let there be anyone listening here who is of those who stumble because they disobey the word Oh, but God, help us to find safety and shelter in Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. And Lord, I pray that this week would be a week of consciously, deliberately coming to him on our own and together. And would you give us, Lord, a glimpse? I think I think for, you already have, but would you keep on giving us glimpses of this beautiful structure that you're building. We can see it locally. We can see it globally. God, we long for this temple to be finished. We long to experience the power of your spirit more and more as you dwell among us. So keep on building, Lord. Don't stop. Keep on bringing us to you. Keep us coming. Amen.